Hello and welcome to Red Couch Mix. I'm Vivek Jacob, joined by Carl Mascarenas, and we are going to get into a lot of Euro talk, and we are mainly going to focus on breaking down the performances this season of David De Gea and Dean Henderson. In terms of the Euro topics, we're going to talk Bruno versus Pogba, the matchup that did not happen, but we'll look at their tournament so far. Uh, Harry Maguire is back in action, so... We'll talk about that. We'll get into the transfer rumors. And we'll also look back on some former uh, United players. Memphis Depay is doing well for the Netherlands. Romelo Lukaku is obviously killing it with Belgium. Uh, we're going to look at maybe what are some of the things uh, that went wrong during their time at United. Carl, you excited for this one? Absolutely, Vivek. I'm buzzing after the final day in the Euros Group F definitely lived up to the billing that was fantastic what was happening almost things changing on a minute by minute basis uh germany getting through by the skin of their teeth and then earlier in the day with sweden and poland going back and forth and you had spain who just ran away against slovakia but it didn't look like that for the first half so all in all a really exciting day today and i can't wait to to discuss some of that with you vivek yeah, in terms of being the most nervous, it was probably during the end of that Sweden-Poland match after Poland had come back to make it 2-2 because if Poland would have gotten another goal, it would have likely meant the Netherlands facing Portugal uh, or at least one of the third-place teams uh, from Group F. It ended up being Portugal. That didn't happen. Sweden ended up winning that match, so... It cleared things for the Netherlands to play Czech Republic. And as per your analysis, <laughs> cleared things for them pretty easy for the semifinals. Yes, yes. I, I do believe that the Dutch have the easiest path to the semifinals. They do have a reinvigorated Danish team that they might come across in the quarterfinals that could put a stop to that. But I do believe looking at all the draws, the Dutch... I would have them as heavy favorites to make the, the semifinal. And who knows, we might have a friendly wager, Vivek. <laughs> yes, yes, we'll get to that a bit later. Carl, looking at the France-Portugal match, when we talked about doing this episode before, we were really hyped to be able to possibly break down a matchup between Bruno and Pogba. That did not materialize. Bruno Fernandez was benched. Uh, he came on late as a sub, but what are your thoughts on Bruno Fernandes through those first two matches? His fit with Portugal, you know, in the shadow of Cristiano Ronaldo, is there room, is there a possibility for him to play the role he's best at? And, you know, we've seen him spend some time on the right. We've seen him spend a bit of time behind. How have you seen his time with Portugal so far at this tournament? I don't think that he's being played in the right position, if I'm being honest. I think the way the Portuguese line up, they've got you know the two defensive midfielders sitting in behind. And then Bruno doesn't have the same amount of space that he has with United to roam and do what he does. In fact, Diego Jota, I think, has more room to do what he does on the left-hand side and actually takes up a bit of those positions that Bruno would take, which kind of condenses the space for him. And that's why he isn't able to exhibit some of the talent that we see with United. So I think that's where it's falling off. 
But at the same time, I do believe that Bruno has been under par and he has to take a certain amount of criticism for that. It looks like, you know, all those heavy minutes he was playing for United are finally catching up to him where he didn't even want to be subbed. You'd see anytime he was subbed for United, he, he wasn't a happy camper. And you can see now that his legs in some situations just don't, don't seem to be there, especially if Portuguese are playing an afternoon game and it's really hot and humid, he, he tends to suffer a little bit more. So that's what I've seen. What about you, Vivek? Have you seen anything that shows why he's been so off color? I think it's pretty much what you pointed pointed out positionally. And I think in the first match against Hungary, he spent a lot of time on the right side trying to deliver crosses. And, you know, he's perfectly adept at, be, at doing those things, but I don't think it's like a natural position. Uh, and we saw the closest we've come to catching a glimpse of the real Bruno is probably that third Portugal goal where... Obviously, Hungary are flat, having conceded the two. Portugal are on a high, and they put together, what, 30 passes before the goal? Mm -hmm. And you could see Bruno's movement in that was what you would usually come to expect. They haven't been able to work that in properly. And I think you look at the way they've been operating as well with Bernardo Silva out wide and Jota on the other side. Those are more players who want to receive the ball, be on the ball, and play intricate passes. Whereas Bruno is someone who, when he has the ball, he wants them running in between the lines, getting behind the defense, and they're not going to make those types of runs. Mm -hmm. The only one who's going to maybe do that is Cristiano Ronaldo through the middle. Yep. So uh, I think that's where you know you're not necessarily going to get the best out of him. And so... If you're Portugal, if it doesn't, if his best role can't be fit into what you're trying to do, then you see a result like today where he's on the bench against France. I guess he got the Beckham boot, eh? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Someone who's looking like a, a Canton Collar candidate for the tournament is Paul Pogba. I mean, that guy, you could say he was so-so against Hungary. I mean, most of the French players uh, weren't at their best against Hungary, but the two biggest matches, Germany and Portugal, this is a player who's looking like a potential player of the tournament. Absolutely. He's been absolute class. Even in today's game, where Rui Patricio pulled out a top-shelf save, uh, that little move that Pogba made where he just moved the ball a little bit and just completely dummied the Portuguese player and then had that curler. Man, that was that was fantastic. That just shows you the presence of mind. Now, Vivek, I want to get into something here with Pogba and I want your opinion. I've been reading article after article, absolutely slating Pogba, saying like the French Pogba that we see playing for France is not the same Pogba that we see playing for United. And it, it upsets me quite a bit to see these kind of articles because... Pogba was outstanding for the second half of the United season. And so for these, you know, whoever is writing these articles to come up with these kind of articles, they clearly haven't been watching Paul Pogba uh, playing for United since in 2021. He's won games single-handedly for us. If you were to go and put a points tally associated with games won by just one player, Paul Pogba for United 
will be up there with Bruno Fernandez. So I mean, he literally tied our Cantona Collar Awards with Bruno uh, with seven each, right? So exactly, and, and Bruno had a quite the head start in the first half of the year, right? Yeah. So you tell me, Vivek, what's your opinion on the France Pogba versus the United Pogba? Yeah, I think it's people just sticking to old narratives and who maybe haven't made the time to watch United as much this season. Obviously, United weren't in the Champions League knockout phases. They were playing for second place in the league. So if they weren't really watching Pogba, then I could see how they would just stick to the narratives of the past. But I think anyone who saw Pogba this season, specifically after the Mino Raiola fiasco, I, I don't see how how there is any way you could have seen his performances after that and thought, okay, there's a major difference between what he was doing for United and what he's doing now uh, with France. I won't even be surprised if people are just judging his whole United career based on the Europa League final. Now, okay, Paul Pogba wasn't at his best in that final, but none of the United players were at their best in that final. So Nope, not um, at all. So if they're using that recency bias, like I, I, I think that, you know what, I hope some people listen to this podcast because Paul Pogba, what he's showing for France right now with those passes in behind the, the defense uh, and the vision, he did the exact same thing for United in a lot of the games that we played. And he invariably, if he didn't have the assist, he had the pass before the pass when we scored. So I think I think people need to take note of that. It was very encouraging to see Harry Maguire. Obviously, he's been out uh, with the ankle injury for a while. So good to see him back. What are your expectations for him uh, the rest of the way for England? we got a big match coming up against Germany now. I think he's going to play. He's going to start every single game, uh, depending on how far England do progress in this tournament. I do have a sneaky suspicion, though, that this could come back to haunt England. Looking at his last game, he's playing against the Czech, right? So he's not going to get tested as much. Yes, Schick definitely tested them in the air. But in terms of pace and on the ground, didn't get tested as much. Harry Maguire didn't look 100% fit. Definitely not match fit. He's been out for so long. Could that come back to bite them? I don't know. The difference is he's not. He's playing uh, with John Stones, who's got a lot of speed. And he's potentially playing with Kyle Walker, who can also back him up. So from a pace perspective, he's not left as exposed as he is for United with Victor Lindelof. So that might save him. I do think that England needed him to be there with his presence, his leadership qualities, and his connection with Luke Shaw on the left-hand side. That's going to be a big blessing. And not to mention, when it comes to set pieces, he is definitely a threat, even though he doesn't get enough on target as we would like him to. <laughs> what about you, Vivek? I, I think it's an interesting decision to make. Obviously, if Harry Maguire is feeling good enough, there's it's going to be a very difficult decision for uh, Southgate to say, hey, I'm going to go with Tyrone Mings instead. Um, I mean, we're, we're seeing how hard it is for him to leave Harry Kane out at the moment or even sub him off. So uh, I think Harry Maguire probably starts against Germany. And, you know, if there's any source of encouragement that England can take from that matchup, it's probably the fact that Germany aren't quite as cutting edge in that final third 
I mean, obviously, on that right side, we saw Leroy Sané. He's got some tricks, but the delivery, the final ball hasn't been there. And then, you know, if you look at pace-wise, Thomas Muller is not going to pose a huge threat. Uh, Timo Werner has been on the bench, so he doesn't have to worry about that too much. So I, I think that from that standpoint, if there's a matchup that, that they'll be quite happy with, they'll probably take going up against Thomas Muller as opposed to maybe uh, Cristiano Ronaldo or Mbappe. All right, Carl, let's get into the transfer rumors that we've seen of late. We're going to get into Sergio Ramos, Pau Torres, Rafael Varane, Paul Pogba, and maybe a little bit of Harry Kane as well as uh, the enemy tries to get in on him. We'll stay at the back. Sergio Ramos, it seems like, you know, he, he said that he obviously won't be seen in a Barcelona jersey. He mm-hmm. won't be seen in a Sevilla jersey. There's always been whispers of, hey, is United the club for him? From my perspective, if Pau Torres cannot happen, then he's a good backup option. Because I look at the value that Edinson Cavani brought to the squad with his experience, his winning mentality. You think about all the winning that Ramos has done at Real Madrid. He is the definition of a leader. He is also the definition of a player who you hate if you are going up against, but you will absolutely love if he is on your side. I think it's a no-brainer, Vivek. I I completely agree with your train of thought as well. Uh, He shouldn't be the number one choice just because there's other candidates out there for the long term that can benefit us. And we've got some pretty good candidates in Pau Torres and Rafael Varane. My number one pick would be Pau Torres just because of his age and the potential and the fact that he uses his left foot. I think it adds a very nice balance to the United team. And if you don't get him, Rafael Varane is in his prime. Now that Zidane has left, it looks like the door has been left open. Varane does seem to want to move away. It's just a question of who's going to capitalize on him. Remember, Chelsea, I won't be surprised if they get a center back as well. Thiago Silva, who renewed his contract for a year, is also 36. So he isn't going to be there for much longer. So from United's track record... They don't seem to want to capitalize on transfers early. They like it going as long as possible and putting all their all their fans uh, up to the test and testing their level of patience. Um, I'm really, really hoping that we get Pau Torres. I was reading Fabrizio Romano, who's who's a very uh, well respected journalist in in Europe. The the woge of of, of footy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, he actually came up with some some stats or some news regarding Jaden Sancho, which we can talk about later. But he also talked about Pau Torres. Apparently, the, the release cause, clause in his contract is not 50 million euros. It's actually 60 million euros. I hope that doesn't throw a, a spanner in the works with United. Clearly, United are looking for more than just one player. So does that affect the budget? Is that why talks with Sancho are taking longer than normal because they're trying to haggle out the add-on clauses. 
But th- that was an interesting piece of news that I thought our listeners should know about is that Pau Torres is actually 60 million euros. Yeah, no, that's worth knowing. And honestly, in terms of getting the business done with uh, Pau Torres, the worst thing United have done is lose that final to Villarreal because uh, obviously they can sit pretty knowing that they have Champions League football. Mm-hmm. And, you know, United win that game. It probably becomes an easier negotiation. I have a feeling, Vivek, that Pau Torres is angling for a move within Spain. And as soon as Rafael Varane leaves, I won't be surprised if he goes to Real Madrid. It just depends if Madrid have the funds. Yeah. no, I mean, with Varane, that's looking at, uh, at about an 80 million transfer as well. So, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of money to spend if United want to address all their needs. Uh if you had to do a quick power ranking of your preference between Ramos, Varane, and Pau Torres, how would you rank the three? So 100% is going to be Pau Torres number one, Rafael Varane number two, and Sergio Ramos number three. I have a feeling we're going to end up with option number three. And I actually thing- have Ramos too. You have two? One thing I wanted to add, Vivek, if we do end up going for Varane, We've basically funded Real Madrid's move for Pau Torres, which is <laughs> which is ironic in itself. Yeah, yeah. And I would say the reason I actually prefer Ramos to Varane is because at 80 million, I would almost rather have Ramos for a season or two or whatever it might be and then try to find that younger center back who would cost less that can continue to grow with the club and Varane I agree he's in his prime right now he's someone who reads the game really well but I also feel he's someone who's prone to blunders and we've seen this in the Champions League a few times uh, we've also I, I would almost compare it to Hugo Lloris where Lloris on the whole is a very very good goalkeeper but every once in a while, he'll make that mistake that makes you think, what just happened? Mm-hmm. And Varane has that tendency. I don't know if you feel the same way. I, I wouldn't go as far as comparing him to Loris because I, I know what you mean. <laughs> Varane, of late, has had errors creeping into his game. I want to give the benefit of the doubt saying that if he gets a change of environment, that might do a world make a world of difference for him. I do think his game is suited to the Premier League, though. And that's why I think he, he would be a fantastic addition for us. Yeah, fair enough. That takes care of uh, what's happening in the back line. Paul Pogba, I don't know how much we can read into this. The Sun was reporting that United are preparing a new contract offer that would be worth 400000 per week. Uh, $104 million in total, which would make him the highest paid in the Premier League. Would you be happy with that? If I'm being honest, Vivek, I would not be happy with that. He's had, what, four or five years to prove himself at United? And it's taken him until the last year to live up to the billing, to the price tag. And... Surprise, surprise, it comes in your contract year. So you gave him that new deal. We all saw what happens when uh, 
you give a player a big deal and then they don't perform, it sends a certain message to the rest of the squad. This happened with Alexis Sanchez, broke the weight structure. Happened with David De Gea, broke the weight structure. And you saw what it's doing with the other players. They're just like, hey, okay, there's a level of mediocrity accepted. This is where I'm a little uncomfortable with offering such a high wage. I would much rather offer a slightly lower wage and pack it with incentives to give him the same amount of money, but he needs to earn it as opposed to like, okay, here you go. You did fantastically well for eight months. We don't want you going anywhere. And the thing is, Paul Pogba has all the negotiation power right now because he's got one month, one year left on his contract. He knows he can walk for free and United are not going to let that happen because he's worth way too much. So United are probably going to end up paying. So let's see how how well we can negotiate with him. Yeah, I think the biggest problem here is that David De Gea contract, right? When you set the precedent and you're paying a goalkeeper 375000 a week, if you've got a star outfield player, guess what? They're going to look at that and say, okay, I know my worth. Mm-hmm. You got to pay up for me too. So it's it's a situation that United have probably dragged themselves into. And now, let's face it, in terms of that contract versus the potential of losing him, as you said, you probably have to lean uh, towards keeping him. Finally, Harry Kane, Man City put in an official offer of £100 million plus... They said they are willing to include players. And on that list of names is Gabriel Jesus and Raheem Sterling. Spurs apparently value him at $150 million. Do you think this is, that Man City is making a fair offer? I think they're making more than a fair offer, if I'm being honest <laughs> with you. And Daniel Levy, you, we all know he's a very shrewd businessman. He doesn't want to sell Kane, so he's going to need a lot for that to happen. The second thing is, I don't think any of those players you just named would want to go to Tottenham. So we'll see how that one plays out. But I think it's a very good offer that's going to be really hard to turn down if I were Tottenham. And does this also does this also say that United are not in the running for Kane? I don't think United can compete with that offer, if I'm being honest. like Yeah. Who are they going? They, they, all they can do is offer more money. As soon as they offer more money, their transfer budget's gone, and then yep. we cannot refresh the squad to the level that we need to. So I think we're out of the running based on that offer. Yeah. Personally, if, if I'm Daniel Levy, I am probably taking that offer. You know, you can see, you can wait till until the Euros are done. Have a conversation with Harry Kane, but. I don't know that you can get more value for Harry Kane than right now. All right. Let's quickly touch on two players, Memphis Depay, Romelu Lukaku. Two players that are shining at the moment at Euro 2020. Two players that did not have a good time at United. This is a question that you brought up. And quickly, I will say, I'm looking at Memphis right? And he's going to Barcelona uh, this upcoming season. During his time in Lyon, 
139 matches, 63 goals, 45 assists. And most of his time, he actually played as a forward who was like linking up play. Mm-hmm. United, if you remember that season, he was at the club. He was mostly on that left side. And we know at that point, his game was very raw, where every single time he would try to go right to the byline, cut it back to his right, and try to make something happen. There was no real use of that left foot. There were no real uh, variety to uh, his runs. And so I think when I look at Memphis, he's someone who's 27 now. He joined United back in the 15-16 season. And he just wasn't ready for that responsibility. Because you look at... I, I looked at what was United's best eleven that season that he was with the club. Davidea in goal. Darmian, Smalling, Blind, Shaw, Bastian, Schweinsteiger, Ander Herrera, Ashley Young, Juan Mata, Memphis Depay, Anthony Marshall. That was a starting lineup in a Champions League fixture. Wayne Rooney was out. So you can put Wayne Rooney into that mix if you want. But at that stage of Memphis's career, I don't think it's reasonable to expect him to be the leader of that group. That's a weak team, Vivek. So I can see <laughs> I can see what you mean. You know what? I think there's some similarities both with Memphis and Lukaku. I think that they came to United a couple of years too early. And both from their maturity and development standpoint, but also the players that United didn't have. Can you imagine if Lukaku was playing on this team with Bruno Fernandes right now and the service that he would have gotten? Or this reinvigorated Luke Shaw crossing? Lukaku didn't have the service in the air whatsoever. You had Ashley Young cutting off his left and coming on the right and then crossing, by which time Lukaku's already made that run and he's not in the same position. On the right-hand side, I don't even know who he had for Lukaku. So it goes to show you that the service wasn't there. As a result, his confidence wasn't there. And so his hold-up play, which is something we were really expecting from him, wasn't there. So you can see that as soon as one of these facets of your game decreases, it really affects the confidence. And Lukaku's 100% a confidence player. Now, he also looks in much better shape. So all these things put together, this show that Lukaku, honestly, he just missed United by a year. If we managed to hold on to him for one more year and got Bruno... I think we would be looking at a completely different United team, if I'm being honest. We're not even talking about Harry Kane because we've got a fantastic striker. In Memphis Depay, I would say that one hurts a little less just because of who we have. We got Rashford. Rashford's probably not coming into this team if Memphis Depay was still with United. He wouldn't have gotten that chance. Okay, Anthony Martial was still there. The jury's still out on him, so I I won't talk about him for this episode because I think we need to save another half an hour for that. (laughs) So um, that's my opinion on both of them. And and that's why I was looking at the way they were playing in this tournament and how much we could have used them for United. But given the circumstances, the Lukaku one hurts a lot more than the Memphis one for me. What about you? Yeah, no, I'm in agreement with you. Uh, I think Lukaku, his touch has improved. His dribbling is incredible now. Like in basketball, we talk about a one-man fast break with LeBron James or Giannis or whoever. Lukaku has become a one-man fast break. Like he gets that ball 
it, you, you can't knock him off the ball. He His dribbling, like I said, that has been, I think, the game changer where he's, you know, you people will crowd him with two or three players and he'll go around them. He'll make the right pass. That is something that I think he didn't have at United. And I think that's made a big difference. Uh, he seems fitter. And I think one of the interesting points Jose Mourinho made when he was ta- speaking with TalkSport was he was saying Inter play the same tactics as Belgium. Mm-hmm. And so it's a perfect fit for him. And he's basically just playing the same role all the time. And you wonder how that might translate for Memphis, where now he's going to Barcelona. He'll be with Frankie de Jong. He might have a similar role there as well. And so that can be a little thing uh, that could bring success as well. We've all seen how, uh, you know, with the England national team, a lot of those club players, they come to the national setup and then they have to play a different role. And despite the, the status of their names, they're not able to deliver. That's a really good point, Vivek. Um, let's see, you know, one of the, the things that was leveled against Lukaku was that can he cut it in the big games? Because whenever it came to the top six in the Premier League against Chelsea, Man City, Liverpool, he wasn't able to get the goals in those games. Let's see what he does in the latter stages of this Euro tournament. I think I already know the answer to that question, but we'll let his goals do the talking. Okay, let's get to the big discussion, Carl. Goalkeeper reviews David De Gea versus Dean Henderson. David De Gea not starting for Spain. Dean Henderson goes home, has to leave the England camp uh, with an injury. So <laughs> maybe not the ideal situation in terms of where our goalies are at uh, on a global level. Where do you want to start with this one? Let's. Why don't we begin with just comparing and contrasting which goalie suits United for the style of play that most likely we will employ next season. Okay. So based on what we've seen with United, they do like to play short like almost every other team these days. And then certain things are required of their keeper. Definitely distribution is one of them with both feet. And then, you know, if you do need to go along, can you get your players, can you get your team out of trouble? Also, if your defense is playing a high line, can your goalie make the changes on where they need to stand to make sure they can snuff out any counterattacks that happen? So based on that kind of context, how do you see De Gea versus Henderson fitting in? I think from that context, it's Henderson without a doubt. And I think the biggest reason I say that is because there was that point in the season where we saw these reports come out that the players themselves seem to prefer Henderson. And so I think that trust level between the back line, between the players and the goalkeeper is so, so important. And so if there's an increased level of faith and trust when Henderson is in net, then I think that automatically makes him the choice. You look at what he offers from a skill standpoint, I would say that he has really good command of the area he's extremely communicative which i think this united team needs his ball distribution is very solid i would say that from a fit standpoint henderson is probably the way to go right now what about you the one question mark that i have with henderson is 
can he cut it when the pressure's on? When you're playing for Manchester United, any potential error gets magnified. And then after that, everybody's on you. And if you happen to have another mistake, God help you, because the media is going to come after you. And Henderson has had a couple of blips. I was really hoping that he would get a game in these Euros because the spotlight doesn't get any bigger playing for the England national team as a goalkeeper because we all know the history with that. And it was unfortunate that he had to go home with a hip injury. So that was the one thing which was really going to make me decide, is it Henderson or is it De Gea? And so with that missing, I tried to lay out some of the qualities that I expect in a goalkeeper to see if I could narrow it down for me. So you you tell me if there's anything missing, Vivek. Distribution is one of them. Command of your six-yard box. Are, can you play the sweeper-keeper? Can you play with both feet? How's your communication? From a penalty save standpoint, where do you stand? And then lastly, reactions. Okay? Those were the seven criteria that I came up with. You you, you actually pointed to a lot of them just, just now as well. So we're on the same page. Now, with all those seven criteria, I had Dean Henderson winning six of those. I had him winning distribution. Command of the six-yard box, coming out for catches for corner kicks, physicality. Sweeper, keeper, he definitely comes off his line a lot more than De Gea. He can play with both feet. Communication, he's ahead in De Gea. Penalty saves, that one's a question mark. I gave him the, the benefit of the doubt, but I haven't seen him save enough. But he hasn't been involved enough for United. And then reactions. De Gea, 100% is winning reactions. I also said De Gea can play with both feet. So I gave both of them a point for that. Okay. But the rest, distribution, I don't think De Gea cuts it when you look at the top keepers like an Ederson or even a Jordan Pickford for that matter. When you look at sweeper keeper, we pointed out in the past, he does not like to come off his line and that's cost us goals in the past. And then finally, penalty saves. I don't think I need to say too much after the Europa League final, but... This is kind of where I stand. And just based off of this analysis, I have to give the number one spot to Dean Henderson. Yeah, I have no arguments against you. I think that Dean Henderson should be the number one to start this season. I don't know where David Gea's future lies, if that is the case. Because if you confirm to him that he will be the number two, maybe he wants to be moved ASAP. And that's where you know, the reported signing of Tom Heaton comes into play. And at least you have a backup option in place. But I think with De Gea, the two biggest weaknesses that stand out to me is, again, his willingness to come outside, come off his line. And for me, that is something that is really, really important. And it, it it's more about confidence. I think David De Gea, with the position that he's been in over the past year, the past two years, it has been the safer play for him. Where if he stays on his line and a defender gets beat and the ball goes in, no one is looking at De Gea for the blame. Everyone is looking at the defender that got bullied or got beat or whatever it is. When really, that might have been a potential catch for him. So 
I think he, he he's been a bit selfish from that perspective. And maybe little things like that have also caused teammates to prefer Henderson, where someone like him is coming for the number one spot and so is willing to be more aggressive and do those things. The second thing I fear with De Gea is that his time has just gone stale. And I think fans have soured on him. Uh, I think that he himself has completely lost confidence. There's many times where you look at him and he doesn't inspire that same level of, don't worry, we're you know, under the bus right now, but I can drag us out of this. I mean, we saw that season after season mm-hmm. for a little while. I don't think he has that same confidence anymore. Uh, so for me, it would be time to move on, but the difficulty is who's going to take him. At 375,000 pounds a week, I think it's very, very difficult unless you're paying, I would say, maybe even half of that to move him. You know what I would like to see, Vivek, is we're making the assumption that De Gea doesn't want to be a number two. I would love if he stays and fights it out for a season and we have healthy competition between the two keepers. And who knows, we could have another Luke Shaw situation on our hands where Dean Henderson just brings the best out of De Gea and then we have a role reversal where he does become the number one because it's hard to leave him out of the team anymore. Are you willing to pay a number two three seventy five thousand a week? For a season, yes. Not more okay. than that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Now, the other argument I wanted to make for David De Gea for a team that might potentially look to buy him and is looking for a reason to believe that you know there's something to be had here. First of all, I, I said the, the fact that the Manchester United situation has gotten stale. I think the change of environment would be really good for him, especially if it if he was to be able to go back to Spain and and be home. Uh, the other thing I will say is I was digging into the numbers of uh, matches and goals conceded and whatnot. On the season, De Gea played 36 matches and conceded 46 goals. That is 1.28 goals per match conceded. But I said, you know, let me look into these matches and see if it's a fair assessment. Is that 1.28 an accurate reflection of what he did over the season? Because I looked at Dean Henderson. He conceded 22 in 26 matches, which is 0.85. And I'm like, that's a big difference. Mm -hmm. And then I pulled up some of the games that I basically put a bit of an asterisk on. I picked six out of 36 matches. You tell me if you disagree with any of them. Okay. So the same way I looked at United as a team and said the start of the season was not reflective of the team, I looked at the three goals at home conceded to Crystal Palace. And you look at the mistakes that were made in the back. I went back and watched the replays. You couldn't put any of that on De Gea. Mm-hmm. That was just clown defending. And... I'm glad I went back and watched this because guess what? David De Gea saved a penalty (laughs) and it was called back. I mean, you talk about the definition of having an unlucky season. He saved a penalty, was maybe a centimeter off his line 
and they called it back for Jordan Ayu to take again, and then he finds the net the second time. So, you, you know, you think a little thing like that might give him a confidence boost. All these little moments that could have given him a confidence boost, and, and it just never came. The the next one, so again, you know, staying on that team theme of the start of the season, two goals conceded to Brighton. Those were absolute joke goals. The six goals against <laughs> Tottenham Hotspur. And then the three other matches that I add to that, are the three, uh, so two goals uh, that I saw against Leipzig. One, I put on him fairly because that was a miscommunication between him and Harry Maguire. Mm-hmm. But the other two, you know, that, that was just shambolic defending uh, yeah. that led to that. Yeah. Then uh, the other two I have are three goals away against Roma, where he was arguably the best player on the pitch. Mm-hmm. And the final one is the two goals at home to Leicester City, where he had to play with a B team because United sacrificed that fixture because they focused on the Liverpool one. And I actually th- I think that was doing De Gea a, a disservice because uh, I don't know if you remember this when we were talking about that three match pileup where mm-hmm. United played Aston Villa on a Sunday, Leicester on a Tuesday, Liverpool on a Thursday. I said, let De Gea play the one that you are going all in on, right? Mm-hmm. Because that'll set the right tempo for playing the Europa final. Instead, he plays with the B team against Leicester. Dean Henderson plays with the A team against Liverpool. So those were the six matches I said, oh, I don't think this is a fair reflection in terms of the goals conceded to put it on him. So if I take away those six matches, all of a sudden in the other 30 matches, it comes down to 0.9. Mm-hmm. Big difference. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with anything you've said, Vivek. I think it's it's a good point. The only thing I will say is that if we're doing that level of analysis, then if we, I think we would have almost have to go game by game with both sets of keepers to see where they are actually, you know, at fault or where it was a complete defensive lapse in concentration. And so that's that's the only thing I would would point to that. The two main matches I found with Henderson because I checked him too were the Istanbul away fixture where you can't put either goal on him. Yeah. That was, again, shambolic defending. And the, uh, and the FA Cup quarterfinal defeat to Leicester City. Okay. All right. No, fair enough then. So, all in all, I mean, this is, I would say, one of those good problems to have because we actually have depth, which we cannot say for other parts of the squad. But I think uh, United and Ole have some decisions to make. I don't think it helps that De Gea is also on the bench for the Spain team because we're not going to see <laughs> what he could be doing there as well. No, no, no. Now, the last thing I wanted to ask you about this uh, this debate. Do you think De Gea has any world-class potential left in him? And then the same thing on Dean Henderson. Do you think he has, like, say top five in the world status in his in his future well here this one's so yes i do think de Gea has world-class potential left in him the the difference is we know what we're getting with de Gea, 
However, I don't think we know what we're getting with Henderson because he's so young and he hasn't been on that stage for long enough. We cannot compare Sheffield United, who's now relegated, with playing in the Premier League week in, week out and the Champions League on the biggest stage. So the jury for me is still out on Dean Henderson. Whereas with De Gea, he's had a prolonged blip. However, he is entering his prime years as a keeper. So I really think that he's going to get back to his best. And that's why I said I'm willing to pay 375k for a number two keeper. Because I think he will get back and he will become the number one again. Interesting. Very interesting. I think that's a great note to finish up on, Carl. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on? No, nothing else. I mean, I'm just looking forward to the round of 16 in the Euros. And, you know, I can't wait to to start discussing the the back line when we get to our next episode on reviewing them. Yes, that is what we will be doing with the next episode. Make sure uh, you join us for that uh, in a couple weeks. In the meantime, a reminder, we are on Twitter at RedCouchManx. If you enjoy the show, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and join us after every match. Reviews and ratings are greatly appreciated. On behalf of Carl and myself, thank you for listening to Red Couch Makes.